is a show about Bigfoot. It's recorded for the skeptics, the believers, the knowers, the hopers, and those who just have a casual interest in the subject. For more information, visit our Facebook page. Sasswood, a show about Bigfoot. I'm one of your hosts, Mark Matsky, and I am joined today by my son and pal, Andy Matsky. Hello there. I'd like to say a special hello to our listeners in Wadsworth on 97.1 FM. We thank you for your continued interest in the show after kind of a hiatus period where uh, towards the end of the year we kind of put it all in the freezer let it sit for a while but we're back and i want to wish all of our listeners a happy new year good to see everybody and let you know that we're here at the beginning of uh kind of a new time for sasswood andy i'll let you jump in anytime you want but i did want to share some of my thoughts on this the history of this show and uh, of course the the big difference moving forward is the absence of Seth Breedlove as my recording partner. And that may explain a little bit of my reluctance to get back behind the microphone um, very quickly. It still is sort of a strange sensation to be setting down to record Sasswet without Seth. And uh, to be candid, I'm a little bit nervous about it. Back when Seth announced that he was going to be stepping back from the recording portion of the show, I wrote a a little diatribe, I guess, or a little treatise, shall we say, uh, on uh, monsterlandohio.blogspot.com, just talking about, you know, um, the news that Seth was stepping away, and my thoughts were uh, really sort of 50-50 at that point about, should I continue on with uh, our show, Monsterland Ohio Radio?, and just leave SAS what be, or should we try to carry it forward? And after receiving a number of very encouraging emails and uh, other connections uh, via social media, we decided to give it a try. So we are going to push forward with SAS what, and we're going to talk a little bit about sort of the format of the show moving forward in just a little bit. But uh, I just wanted to say, um, I started off with Sasswood with episode five. That's the first episode that I appeared on after going on Seth's other podcast, Ancillary Characters, to talk about Godzilla. And uh, we just start. We met at the Ohio Bigfoot Conference, and our first episode was recounting what the Ohio Bigfoot Conference was like and our experiences and so forth. And from there, it really blossomed into a show where uh, we got a number of special guests on, and I just wanted to name drop a couple of those. Uh, Lyle Blackburn, early on, we talked to him. That became the genesis of a number of interesting projects, as listeners to this show are probably aware. Uh, We got to talk to Shannon LeGros a number of times, who now hosts a really, really great podcast that uh, she co-hosts with Ryan Sprague and Sam Sheeran called Into the Fray. Listeners of this show, I'm sure, are aware of that as well. Then also uh, people like Kathy Strain, David Floyd, uh, Linda Godfrey, Eric Altman, Vince Dorse, who we we just got his uh, Bigfoot comic book 
uh, just before Christmas, and that was really cool. But, you know, that's what created the opportunity for me to talk to some people who I really admire, and it's not saying too much to say that they're kind of heroes to me. Uh, and I'm thinking of uh, Lauren Coleman, especially, and also George Norrie. In retrospect, it just, I can't believe that I had the chance to talk to both of those men and uh, for an extended period of time, not just like a 20-minute conversation, but an hour-long conversation with each of these uh, gentlemen whose work I respect and uh, I'm inspired by. And, uh, you know, to take nothing away from George Norrie, Lauren Coleman in particular, to be able to um, to know that he was aware of the program and that he wanted to come on and that he is especially supportive of Small Town Monsters projects meant a great deal to me. And none of that would have ever happened if it were not for Sasquatch, at least in my case. So um, the the show means a lot to me. And I'm glad to have the opportunity also to carry it ahead into the future, um, not knowing where we're going necessarily, but that we're going there together. And uh, we're going to try to make this as regular of an occurrence as possible. So um, that's about all I have to say to that. Andy, did you have anything you wanted to add? or I definitely agree thoughts? with you with all the things that would not have happened in our life if Sasswit hadn't started, or we had never met Seth. I mean, we had nev- we would never have gone down to Fout, at least at this point in my life, I would never have gone down. And then talking with Lauren Coleman, and then George Norrie, with the list of people, it was sometimes, like, you would say, oh, I'm going on with this person, I'd be like, who's that again? And like you would say, I'm like, no way, you're going on with them? And so it'd just be interesting with all this, all the guests that's been on it's really been amazing all the things that have happened through that yeah you're absolutely right about going to Falk. i mean that too would not have even been in our uh a possibility a, a dream to dream were it not for a connection with seth so yeah Sasswood is uh it's enriched our lives to say the least um not not monetarily certainly uh but uh in terms of experiences and people and just getting to rub shoulders with and share ideas with people whose opinions really matter to me so great great thing going on here and uh, we really really want to carry it forward so let's talk a little bit about the format of the program what we envision going forward um what i would like to have is sort of segments to the show so we're, whereas in the past, Sasswit was pretty loosey-goosey in terms of how we were going to talk about things and, and what we talked about, not to say we won't go off on tangents from time to time, but I, I see us doing a number of things. One would be kind of a Bigfoot in the news section. For a while there in 2016, it seemed like there was a new video coming out every week. So that's the type of thing I think we're going to comment on. And if anything else comes up in the the Bigfoot world will certainly roll it around here. Then I would like to get into a subject that's near and dear to my heart, and that is our Bigfoot bookshelf. And in fact, that's going to be a big part of what we do today in talking about a very influential author who really doesn't get talked about hardly at all, uh, as far as I'm aware. And so that gives you a clue as to where we're going today. 
And then if we have any special guests or, or people that would like to talk to us, we will do that. Uh, read any listener letters that come in and things of that nature. Um, is that it? Am I forgetting something? Or... No, I don't think so. Reports, like you talked about, but that's more of the Bigfoot in the news stuff. And then the main subject of the show, I would assume, would be in there too. But that would be involved with everything else. What is the main subject of the show? This show? Yeah. It's about Marion T. Place and more specifically on the track of Bigfoot, which oh. is classic, classic Bigfoot book. Yeah. You're right. Tell me, well, before I launch into my whole thing, because <laughs> this book really got me started in Bigfoot, um, is the bottom line. What, what's your thoughts about On the Track of Bigfoot? Reading it for the, this show was really the first time I think I've read it, and I was surprised how in-depth it was. It has, as I'm sure we'll talk about, the Jerry Crew thing from like start to finish, pretty much. And to be quite honest, I had never heard that story fully like that. And, you know, most people just think Jerry Crew, Bigfoot, was coined because he found this footprint in the mud. But it's more than that. Like, missing huge barrels and things like that that really, I feel like, you know, just get overshadowed by the fact that it's like almost the first truly widespread report of a Bigfoot track. What did you think of her writing style? I really enjoyed it. How it would almost, it was almost 50-50 about more of the, you know, cryptozoological angle of things with the Bigfoot stories. Then about how the land was, like the rivers and how they all connected to each other. I really enjoyed that part of it. It was really amazing how she would spend almost equal time on how the rivers started here, joined up here, went there, and then this is how the Bigfoot sighting happened, or so on. So, And it's also, you know, just enjoyable to read, and it's kind of a children's book, but that's good because it's easy reading. It's not this big, long, hard thing, and she, she explains a lot of things that might get, just go, oh, this is this type of subject, and she explains that type of subject. I'm glad you said that because it is written for younger readers, but it's not dumbed down at all. And I remember as a kid reading that, kind of, I would skip over some of the parts like describing the, the terrain, and but I'd get right to the Bigfoot reports. But now going back and reading it now, it's, you know, just excellently written and well, so well written, you know, on a level uh, that puts it, you know, in the top tier of Bigfoot books, in my opinion, just because it's so well done. And I'll talk a little bit in just a moment about Marion T. Place and her career. Information about her is very hard to come by. And the only reason I was able to get anything at all about her uh, of substance is that she lived in Arizona for a time and evidently donated most of her professional papers to Arizona State University, where it's all archived now. And so there's a description of what is there in the archive online. But it took some digging. You know, if you just type in Marion T. Place and Google it or go on Amazon and look for information, it's extremely bare bones. So I do have some biographical information to share about her. Maybe I should just do that right now. Yeah. Um, 
really, really interesting life. Uh, Marion Whittinger Templeton uh, was born in Gary, Indiana, October 19, 1910. She earned her Bachelor's of Science from the University of Minnesota in 1931 and her B.A. from Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida, 1935. She also completed her Master of Library Science at the University of Minnesota. After spending a vacation in Montana, Templeton became so fascinated with the West that she went to work as a reporter for the Glasgow, Montana Courier. She married Howard Thuraway Place in Glasgow on January 4, 1936. The couple had two children, David and Nancy. Marion continued to write freelance feature articles and became interested in writing children's literature when, and this is a quote, I tried to find good books for my children that would give them a background in Montana history, as well as the authentic feel for this treasured state and its pioneering periods that I discovered that there just weren't any. So in time, I tried writing articles about Montanans and Montana's wonders and then tried books for teenagers. As usually happens, one bout of research led to another. I kept reading and writing. Place went on to write over 40 books for children and young people, many set in the American West. Her work won a number of awards, including four Golden Spur Awards given by the Western Writers of America for Best Western Juvenile Novel and Best Western Juvenile Nonfiction Title. The 1977 Garden State Children's Book Award for On the Track of Bigfoot and the 1982 Mark Twain Award for The Boy Who Saw Bigfoot. She was also nominated for the 1982-83 California Young Reader Medal in the Intermediate category for The Boy Who Saw Bigfoot. Place has written under her own name and under two pseudonyms. She recalls that, again a quote, I began writing about such subjects as hunting, fishing, forest service, and other state and federal fish and wildlife, grazing and water projects, to mention only a few. I studied my markets before submitting and observed that the kind of subjects I was interested in were done by men. So I chose to use the pen name of Dale, my uncle, and White, a portion of my middle name, Whittinger. For about 10 years or more, I was known as Mr. White. The other pseudonym, R.D. Whittinger, was used briefly only for Westerns. In other words, bang-bangs, pulps. I was experimenting with several kinds of writing, and this one was not for me. In 1962, Howard and Marion Place moved from Montana to Portland, Oregon. Marion Place returned to work as a children's librarian because she just felt like being with children again. They asked the most stimulating questions. The Places wintered in Sun City, Arizona, and traveled around the country in a motor home during the summer. Marion Place died in Oregon on April 14, 2006. And again, that comes from the Arizona State University Library Special Collections. So a really interesting life, and I think what you see here is a love for writing. You know, mm-hmm. she's we're not talking about someone who's necessarily obsessed with the Bigfoot subject, but covers it with the skill that a writer who's published over 40 books would have. I have something very interesting with the boy who saw Bigfoot, a uh, former Sunday school teacher of mine gave me a copy of that book because they knew I was into Bigfoot. It was just one day they were like, I got this book at an estate sale, I think it was, because I know you like Bigfoot. And I was like, thank you. It was totally out of the blue. And it was very interesting that it was that book. It's a very interesting book. It was a very funny thing. It's like, really? That's interesting. Describe the book a little bit because it is different from On the Track of Bigfoot. You Ooh. said you read it. No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Busted. Busted. Well, The Boy Who Saw Bigfoot is a fictionalized account of a young boy. And I think the reason that it got 
the acclaim that it did, as you heard, it won a number of awards, is because it it sort of indirectly deals with the subject of divorce. It's a, a young boy; his parents are separated or divorced, and you know, sort of seeing this Bigfoot in the woods of Northern California uh, fills a spot in his life. And then there's, of course, there's some peril. I think the Bigfoot's um, environment is threatened by some corporation or some evil guy. Um, so there's those type of themes as well, which in the late 70s were both sort of cutting edge topics and then mixed in with the Bigfoot subject, which was extremely popular at the time, made for a, a winning combination and got notoriety in the way that a nonfiction book like On the Track of Bigfoot maybe didn't at first. I promise I'll read it. We'll have a book report on a later yeah. episode. But as I was saying before, or just hinted at, I guess, On the Track of Bigfoot was an extremely influential book. It's the first book that I remember picking up that was exclusively devoted to the Bigfoot subject. I was at a stage where reading chapter books, you know, and books with mostly text was easy for me to do. And this just captivated me completely. And the thing that was great, and like you said, Andy, about going through it now, was to see how comprehensive it really is. I mean, it's it's for children, but it's not childish. It really takes you through some of the the huge events of the 60s and 70s. As you mentioned, Jerry Crew, um, also getting into John Green a little bit. Ivan Sanderson comes in. And you also hear about Albert Osman in the later chapters, as well as the Patterson-Gimlin film. I mean, it really is a who's who of, of modern Bigfootery, except it was written way back in the uh, late 70s. So it really is cutting edge. And as far as I know, there's nothing in the book that is reported that's inaccurate or wrong. The thing that interests me, and you, you said it was well-written, I agree. I'm wondering how much of the descriptive quality of the writing is imagination, or if she really researched, like, what Jerry Crew did next. Because, you know, it takes mm -hmm. you through this section. It's like Jerry Crew showed up at the work site, and he went into you know, where the foreman is, and different people talked to him there. Mm -hmm. And then he went on with his day. And I just wonder how much of that was um, embellished or if it, she really did say, you know, went to the lengths of saying, here's everybody who was at work that day. Mm -hmm. She may have done that because she seems to be very thorough in her research abilities. So um, I would just really recommend that people pick up the book if you can get your hands on a copy. I think there's uh, numerous used copies available on Amazon.com and other places. I'm looking at it right now, and um, you know it begins with the the Jerry Crew incident, and that covers a couple chapters. Also ahead of her time, uh, Marion Place gets into the Hoopa Indians mm -hmm. and sort of their stories that they had that predated. Uh, European-American people being around and things of that nature. What I really wanted to bring to the forefront today is that Chapter 7, is this, am I in the right place here? No, I don't think I am. Um, uh, well, another thing, it's, I do agree with you with the 
with the Hoopa Indians. It is very interesting that she brings that up in the middle of almost one of the classic American Bigfoot stories, which is Jerry Crew. And then she brings up the fact that these Indians saw it years and years ago. That's something that John Green talks about. Yet she's doing it in a children's book. That's very interesting. Okay, I found what I was looking for. And this was, to me, this was the most stunning thing about going back to the book and rereading it, is I really had no recollection of this one report that was uh, centered on a logging camp on the Chetco River over the state line in Oregon, but no more than 50 air miles from Bluff Creek. I don't recall ever hearing this story before, and of course, I would have if I read the book long ago, but it just, this isn't one of those stories that stuck in my mind. And what is is most intriguing about that is that it describes an aggressive Bigfoot, mm-hmm. which has become a very modern ideal, but here it was embedded in this book. And I just wanted to review the story for our listeners because it just, it jumped out at me as something somewhat out of place with the rest of the Bigfoot stories of that era. But the the other thing about it is that as Place tells it, these other major players like John Green and Ivan Sanderson knew of this story and maybe had investigated it to a certain degree. So here's the story, and I'm just going to go right off of Place's book because this will also give you a sense of her writing style. The operation on Chetco River was a small one, employing a dozen men whose families lived in tents alongside the river. For several weeks, nothing unusual happened. Occasionally, garbage cans were overturned at night by marauding bears. Sometimes the beasts were so troublesome that an armed guard stood by while the loggers felled the big trees. At the campsite, mothers watched their young children closely and forbade older boys and girls to play hide-and-seek in the forest. Even when they swam in the shallow river, an adult kept a sharp lookout for bears. Then one morning, enormously large human footprints were discovered along the riverbank. The loggers laughingly accused one another of having feet as big as chopping blocks. Everyone, from the oldest to the youngest in camp, measured his footprints against those of the unknown visitor. Since no one's feet were that large, one question was bandied about repeatedly. If those weren't a bear's tracks, whose were they? Someone said there was a quote-unquote wild man living way up the river. He was an irritable old devil who threatened to shoot anyone who approached his cabin. Every spring and fall, he walked out to a crossroads trading post to swap bear or elk skins for beans, salt, and tobacco, and a clean shirt. No matter how bad the weather was, he never wore a hat or boots. He was always bareheaded and barefooted. Barefooted? Then the tracks were his. The old fellow must have come down the mountain to snoop around the camp. His feet had splayed out from going barefooted so many years, so that's why his footprints were so large. With the mystery of the tracks happily solved, the people promptly forgot about them. But several nights later, the sound of eerie whistling and angry shrieks wakened them. In every tent, men bounded out of bed and grabbed their guns, assuming there was a wounded bear nearby. No one lighted a lamp for fear of attracting the beast, and frightened children were warned not to cry. The spine-chilling noises went on and on. Sometimes they seemed close by, other times from the direction of the road or the river. Obviously, the bear was thrashing around because strange thudding and snapping noises were heard. But finally, the sounds faded into the distance and quiet returned to the dark campsite. Everyone sighed with relief and went back to sleep. 
At daybreak, the men gathered to talk. Most were positive the racket was caused by a wounded bear until one fellow pointed out that bears didn't whistle or scream. They grunted and growled and sometimes roared. That was true, his companions admitted. Maybe it was a mountain lion. Lions were powerful screamers. But did anyone ever remember hearing a wild cat whistle? To satisfy themselves and ease their family's worries, a half dozen men searched about for bear or mountain lion tracks. They found no lion spoor at all and no fresh bear tracks. However, at the edge of the clearing, beyond the first stand of trees and dense undergrowth, they came upon more of the giant-sized human footprints. Every man voiced an opinion. The old recluse must be trying to scare the people into leaving. No, if he didn't want folks around, he could walk right into camp in broad daylight and tell them to get out. Not that anyone would. He didn't own the whole mountain. Another man wagered a dollar that no human made those awful sounds. Insane people could, a friend pointed out. Maybe the old recluse had gone crazy. That would explain the footprints and the shrieking, wouldn't it? The men glanced around nervously. Suppose the old hermit had turned into a raving maniac. He might be hiding nearby. Maybe he was spying on them this very minute. Maybe he was peering down his gun sights at them. All leaped behind the nearest tree. In hoarse whispers they agreed they had to catch the demented man before he killed someone. So as quietly as possible, the search party backtracked along the line of footprints. These led them out to the road several hundred yards above camp and up the road to the logging site. Here they found where the wild man had emerged from the forest into the open area and had prowled around the tree stumps, piles of brush and machinery used in loading the logs onto wagons. Then the men had a nasty shock. Massive, unwieldy tree limbs, far too heavy for one man to handle, had been pulled out of the tangled waste piles and either tossed aside like matchsticks or used to beat on the machinery. Again, everybody talked at once. Look here, it took three of us to drag this limb onto the scrap pile. Not even a maniac could haul it off by himself. It had to be the old guy who did it. There's only one set of footprints. Right. If it wasn't, then it was some kind of monster with superhuman strength. Be serious, man. We've got a real problem here. The searchers followed the tracks back down the road and into the forest. For the first time, they noticed shrubs torn to pieces and saplings uprooted and whacked to shreds. This explained the thudding and snapping sounds heard during the night. The footprints circled the camp, went down the well-beaten path to the river, turned back to the road, went down at a half-mile, and turned off into the forest. The men pressed on as far as they dared. However, when the tracks plunged down into a steep ravine, they stopped. The gloomy depths provided too many hiding places for a demented killer. Besides, one man remembered if they were much later in reporting for work, the boss might dock them a half-day's wages. While walking back to camp, they decided to say nothing to their families about a maniac. Actually, the recluse might have been snooping around before or after the night howler passed by. Still, how do you explain the damaged shrubs and ruckus at the work site, and if you ruled out a bear or a mountain lion, what was left? Footprints. That's what was left. Not paw prints or hoof marks. Human footprints. Then you're talking about a monster, exclaimed one very exasperated logger. His companions whooped. Whoever heard tell of monsters in Oregon? The Chetco Indians believed there were man-animals in the woods, the logger informed his friends. He had heard the story from a white man whom the Indians trusted enough to take into their confidence. 
They claimed that for generations they had shared their hunting grounds with fierce-looking, hairy creatures who walked upright like men. The strange beings were not human nor animal, neither friendly nor hostile. They were simply there, like every other man or wild creature. So the Indians left them alone. The speaker was interrupted. Did the Indians say they let them alone or it alone? Them, the man said emphatically. The Chetko said that now and then they had spied a full-grown male or female with a small one. A family of monsters? The other loggers laughed uproariously. The arguing and speculating carried on all day and during the evening. At bedtime, everyone went to bed, hoping there would be no more scary night noises. And there were not, that night or the following. But very late on the third night, the frightening sounds were heard faintly from far off in the woods. People jerked upright in bed. As the whistling and screaming grew louder, in every tent men pulled on their trousers and boots and readied their guns. Obviously the night howler was coming closer and closer. When he seemed only fifty feet away, one man took desperate action. Hastily fashioning a torch of oily rags and kindling, he set fire to it. Torch in one hand and rifle in the other, he raced into the woods. He knew wild animals were afraid of fire and fled from it. Maybe maniacs were too. If one or the other attacked him, he would hurl the flaming torch and shoot. Meanwhile, the man's wife called for help. Within moments, several men stumbled toward her in the darkness. They groaned when they learned their comrade had gone into the woods alone. None hesitated to follow, but minutes passed while one dashed off to fetch a lantern and others supplied themselves with extra cartridges. Finally, the party headed into the forest in the direction from which the awful sounds were heard. They had covered only a short distance when the whistling and shrieking stopped. The men halted and listened. There was a long silence. Then an outburst of bestial yowling followed by human screams. Thinking their friend was being attacked, the men fought through the undergrowth, the man with the lantern in the lead. Moments later, their comrade appeared and collapsed in their arms. At first, he was too terrified to speak. His companions fired their guns to drive off the howler and then waited patiently for the poor man to gasp out the details. He said that by torchlight, he had followed the line of giant-sized footprints and suddenly came upon a huge creature covered with hair. A bear? An ape, a monstrous ape, seven or eight feet tall, two axe handles wide across the shoulders with beady yellow eyes and bared teeth. The torchlight must have blinded it because it stood stock still, one hand shading its eyes. Then it let out a tremendous roar. The man hurled his torch in its face, but instead of shooting, he ran screaming toward camp. While his companions did not doubt his word, they asked anxiously if he was sure the beast was an ape. Yes, he was positive. It really looked like an ape? Yes, an ape. Did it have fangs? You bet. Claws? The man said sarcastically he hadn't stayed around long enough to study the brute. But after thinking it over, he said it had hands like a man, only twice as large, and covered with hair right down to the fingernails. After that, all decided to return to camp. There, everyone crowded into the largest tent to hear the man's story. After much discussion, the loggers agreed to take turns standing guard day and night until the ape was captured or shot. Two men would patrol the campsite on two-hour watches while the rest worked or slept. Since practically every woman present knew how to handle a gun, their assistance during the daylight hours was welcomed. The older boys and girls offered to gather firewood so that large fires could be kept blazing all night. 
When everyone understood his or her duty, the meeting disbanded. As soon as the families returned to their tents, the first two-man patrol set out on its rounds. They heard nothing suspicious, nor did others who took their turns until daylight. Nothing unusual happened during the day or the early night hours. The patrols made their rounds and kept the fires blazing, but the two whose turn came about 2 a.m. asked the men they were to relieve to stand by. They wanted to slip into the woods and really search for the ape. Patrolling the camp wasn't accomplishing anything. If you wanted to track down a beast, you had to go after him, not wait for him to walk up and shake your hand. Reluctantly, the one patrol agreed to stand by while their relief party set out on their ape hunt. The hunters carried a small lantern because without sunlight, they could not follow any tracks. But they were careful to keep the light at ground level. Their rifles were loaded and the safety catches thumbed back. Not long after, they came upon bits of charred cloth amidst a welter of huge footprints. This must be where their friend had thrown his torch at the monster. Yes, here were his boot marks. Fortunately, the ground was damp or the torch could have started a forest fire. After examining the area closely, they found where the ape had turned deeper into the forest instead of backtracking to the road. They followed gingerly, step by step, over and around ferns, shrubs, outcroppings of rocks and massive tree trunks. What happened next could only be guessed. Apparently, the ape-like creature loomed before them. One man started shooting while the other put down the lantern and shot too. The patrol on guard at the campsite heard the volley of shots. They pounded each other happily. The hunters had killed the beast. But then they listened in mounting horror to frantic cries for help, which were drowned out by horrendous shrieks and roaring. The awful noises continued for some moments and then faded out. The silence was even more frightening to the guards. They shouted for help and soon were surrounded by armed loggers and their wives. After a hasty explanation, all the men plunged into the woods, leaving the women to build up the fires and protect the children. The searchers shouted, swung lanterns, and fired their guns so that their friends would know help was on the way. After advancing some distance, they stopped briefly and called to the men. When neither responded, they fired shots. No answering shots were heard. Once more, the party advanced. Before long, they came upon a gruesome sight. Their friends were dead. Judging from bloodstains, their bodies had been slammed against tree trunks and torn to pieces. A trail of blood-smeared footprints led off into the forest. The beast obviously had been wounded, but no man present was willing to track it through the dark forest. Some did volunteer to gather up the remains of their unfortunate comrades, while others returned to camp for blankets and to break the sad news. Within 24 hours, the campsite was deserted. The logging operation was moved to another location. A professional hunter with trained hounds was hired to assist hunters in tracking down the savage beast. It was never captured, nor its voice ever heard again. The most people could hope for was that it had crawled into a well-hidden lair and died. Now, the thing about this is that it's reported as um, a, a report that was given to um, the editor, uh, Genzoli, of the uh, newspaper uh, around Bluff Creek, and um, that it was taken seriously enough by researchers like John Green and Ivan Sanderson that they regarded this as one of many stories. 
What do you think? That is a great story. I love it. It's has all the checklist items in the beginning, you know, the weird snapping, the howls, and then it goes so dark, yet not overly dark that you think it's fake. It's just enough gore. I mean, they talk about the bodies being slammed into trees and ripped apart. I mean, that's so weird. And then the fact that they did see human footprints leaving the scene, you know, it. what else could it be? But something that I did like about it was how it's like, oh, well, I've heard stories about a wild man that lives in the woods. See, all this stuff would never happen today. Yet, back then, I'm sure it could happen. I mean, that's an amazing, amazing story that happens right there. And there's no real warning signs of it being a hoax or anything, but how? I mean, it's amazing. (laughs) And then the fact that this really is the first time we remember hearing this story. It's not this big, well-known story. It's, It's unbelievable. I mean... We're talking about how this is such a a good book and it has all these well-known cases except for this one. And it's in the middle of all this. How? How? Yeah, it's fascinating because it ties together all these very contemporary Bigfoot tropes. You know, the Mm -hmm. aggressive Bigfoot or was it a wild man? And these are people who know the woods. They would recognize a bear track if they saw a bear track. I mean, it's just, like I said, it just all of a sudden... It was everything I remembered and expected, and then I get to that chapter, and it's like, wow. And you could just chalk it up to being a friend-of-a-friend story almost, were it not for the fact that some of the early researchers really seemed to, according to Marion Place, knew of this story and took it fairly seriously. So it, that was kind of the reward for um, rereading this book again, along with... Yeah, I think you get a sense of her style there. Uh, it's, you know, it's very unpretentious. It is very descriptive. Again, I wonder how much of what's written in this story was reported versus, you know, kind of her artistic embellishment mm-hmm. taking place. But in the end, if you like these type of stories, you really don't care because it's so skillfully done. And the whole book is like that from I like, beginning to end. I like all the workers being like, maybe it's this. Maybe it's, I'll wager a dollar that it's this. All right. And it's all the conversation that's in there is whether it's like you're talking about her coming up with that or whether it's one person saying, oh, well, this is how it happened. It's still amazing on how the story goes. And there's also in the illustration section photos that now are like extremely classic ones like Renee de Hinden holding up giant track casts, a very young looking Bob Gimlin uh, holding up casts, uh, John Green with a footprint, um, you know, guys estimating the stride, which pictures like that really help to fill in the gaps of these written accounts to see the stride length of mm-hmm. uh, these, these tracks is really kind of breathtaking. Uh, there's pictures of Bigfoot traps that some people made the long before mountain monsters was a thing. <laughs> um, some old cabin pictures that kind of approximate what you would have seen out in the 
uh, the great Pacific Northwest at one time, Roger Patterson, his picture, um, Jim McLaren's very famous eight-foot statue, and Rene de Hinden kind of leaned against it so casually. And there's other pictures in here there's as well. There's a picture of John Green measuring a stride length, I believe it is, that's really now would be a classic John Green photo, which kind of makes you happy. He's like, it's kind of serious about it, and it's it's really cool. It's a really cool photo. Gives you, like you're talking about, a sense of what actually that would have looked like, as opposed to just go- reading it. It's showing you. So if you are a Bigfoot fan, I cannot impress upon you enough how much I think you'll enjoy reading on the track of Bigfoot, whether you're a younger reader or you've been around the block as far as Bigfoot is concerned. You would, I think, be rewarded by rereading this uh, book by Marion Place, who's sort of an unsung hero to me of Bigfoot literature. Maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe she's taken less seriously because she's a woman, you know, and she, even in that biography that I gave, you know, she was cognizant of the fact that because she was a woman, she'd be taken less seriously by some, so she wrote under a pseudonym, and also because she was interested in other topics. You know, I think there would be some in the Bigfoot community who would look at her just as an opportunist because she was writing about other subjects as well. She wasn't 100 percent devoted to the subject like you might be supposed to be. Uh, But I for the vast majority of the listeners to this program, I think that you would just have a blast reading or rereading this very important Bigfoot book. I look forward to reading it again. I kind of, I wouldn't say speed read it, but I knew I had to read it for this. So I definitely want to read it and take my time. It's such an amazing book. It's so well written. Even though it's simple, it's good that it's simple. I think anyone can understand this book. You don't have to go, well, maybe it's too smart for me. It's, it's fine. It's really easy to understand, really easy to read, and... I mean, it talks about and talks about stuff that really wasn't talked about at that time, like the aggressive Bigfoot reports and then the Indian connection. It's amazing how almost and truly ahead of its time it was. And something I do want to mention is in it, there's a little section about Ivan T. Sanderson and John Green. It's amazing. It's just all like how they meet. They're around a campfire. And then it kind of sets up the Albert Osman story. But you can almost imagine Ivan T. Sanderson and his group of guys and John Green sitting around a campfire going, oh, have you heard about Albert Osman? And going, what? No. Like sharing these reports that are now classic reports. And then it's like, hey, we're doing this survey. We're going to be up in British Columbia in August. Are you going to be there? He's like, yeah. So... When you're up there, come and see me. And it's all this, all this amazing things that are the early connections of almost the founding fathers of this Bigfoot. It's amazing. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. That is a great tease, I think, to get people to pick up this book and read it because that really is the sense of how you know, almost they met randomly. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's, it's awesome. You're, it's exactly right. It, it, what an exciting time that must have been mm-hmm. for these guys. I mean, talk about being out on the edge. I mean, they, nobody else was doing this. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's really cool. One thing I wanted to mention also is that this was, again, the first 
real serious Bigfoot book I got my hands on, the same author, Marion T. Place, came out a couple, a year or two later with the book called Bigfoot All Over the Country. And it was funny because I was I was pretty young when I read this book for the first time. I want to say I was in first grade when I first picked it up. And so it's one thing as a little kid living in sort of urban Michigan to read a book called uh, On the Track of Bigfoot because Bigfoot's out somewhere in Oregon or California, and that's a long ways from the Detroit area. But then to get a book in your hands called Bigfoot All Over the Country, now Bigfoot's been seen in my state, you know, in the same region almost that I live in. I remember that being a real sort of game-changing moment for me where Bigfoot went from being something really cool and interesting to something cool and kind of scary in a way (laughs) because it now opened the door to him and that was an important progression for me and i think that in some way that mirrors a lot of people in my generation you know who thought thanks to books like this and the show in search of that bigfoot was largely confined to out there when in fact people were seeing it all over the place and so it just became a different thing after um reading Bigfoot all over the country. It's. I want to pick up that book. Do we have that book? I don't know if we do or not. We need to find it. I'm surprised with myself that we don't have it if we don't. We have a lot of books. I think it's okay if we miss one or two. No, it's not okay. It's we not. <laughs> this must be rectified. So, so the follow-up that needs to happen in this episode is Bigfoot All Over the Country and The Boy Saw Bigfoot. We need to have a follow-up episode. Down. Yes. Read more Marion Place. Remember her legacy. <laughs> but no, she really was great, and I wish she was still around to talk to. Um, but she's not. And so I would, uh, again, I, I'm very grateful for the uh, information that we were able to find on her. Internet pays off. Internet pays off again. Well, any concluding thoughts that you have, Andy, on our inaugural first episode of the year, episode 101? Well, something talking about Marion Place that you really should. We've said this before, but really, pick it up. If you've read it before, reread it. You should read this book because it really is simple. And with Bigfooting today and even cryptozoology in general, I think we need to be a little more simple. It's going a little over the top. I think we need to get down to the basics, and this is a very basic book, and that's not bad, but I really do think that you should read this book. And I want to read Boy Who Saw Bigfoot Now and the other books that she has written. That's it for our maiden voyage. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, did we mention this mm-hmm. already? Uh, we're Saswat is on Twitter, and you can find us at Saswat Show. Also, remember our Facebook page. It's a great way to be in contact with us. And uh, if you have any letters or ways that uh, you'd like to interact with the program, just let us know. Uh, we're kind of wide open to the possibilities as we look at a new year. Suggestions are definitely open. If you want to write anything in, we'll take it. So, for Seth Breedlove the whole small town monsters crew who else for I don't know uh, everyone who listens <laughs> for Linda Breedlove 
<laughs> who I'm sure is listening to this. Wondering why we just said that. <laughs> there would be no Sasquatch without yeah. her. Let's face it back here. Half the listens. And for all of uh, those who are on the track of Bigfoot, this is Mark and Andy Mansky. <laughs>